Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. How much influence did the American Federation of Teachers have on the CDC and the decision over school reopenings? Lawmakers questioned the head of the union. The U.S. government has data on millions of Americans through a secret surveillance program. Find out what high-ranking officials say and who has access to the data. An estimated 16,000 U.S. citizens are still in Sudan. What are their options? And why hasn't the U.S. evacuated its citizens from the war-torn country? We'll take a deep dive. A new U.N. report is raising eyebrows. It seeks to decriminalize all forms of drug use and sexual activity, calling them human rights issues. A train derailment in Wisconsin sending two locomotives and an unknown number of trains cars plunging into the Mississippi River. A teachers' union chief admitted to offering edits to CDC's school reopening guidelines during testimony on Capitol Hill. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Lawmakers questioned American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten. They wanted to get to the bottom of whether the union unduly influenced the CDC's policy on school reopenings during the pandemic. Representative Brad Wenstrup opened the House subcommittee hearing. We're investigating the decision-making process behind school closures and the effects it had. Wenstrup says that investigation includes evaluating whether the CDC followed the science as they knew it. Or merely accepted outside guidance regardless of available data. Wenstrup, a medical doctor, says schools should have reopened much earlier. Weingarten conceded that there was consultation with the CDC beginning with a conference call in January 2021 and two or three subsequent phone calls with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Weingarten confirmed that she suggested revisions to the CDC school reopening operational strategy. She testified that only two specific policy changes were recommended. Weingarten said she also asked the CDC to create a trigger that would serve as a guideline for knowing when to close schools. We wanted a number because most of us are not scientists, so we wanted a number. Representative Nicole Maliotakis says the teachers' union and local affiliates spent $20 million on political donations in 2021. The lawmaker says nearly all of the funds went to Democrats and liberals as the debate about opening schools raged. And I think it is a question that we have is whether you had this type of access because of those contributions. We don't see the parents being asked their opinions. Weingarten pleaded her age a couple of times in response to questioning. Look, I'm 65 years old. I don't remember everything anymore. Representative Jamie Raskin wondered aloud at the purpose of the hearing. It's convened in order to accuse a federal agency of the crime of consulting with American citizens. Weingarten insisted that she and the teachers' union placed a high value on in-person education. She says she understood the harmful effects of prolonged school closure on students, but says they fended for themselves to define safety and operational policies in the absence of guidance from the Trump administration. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene chided Weingarten for her actions. But the other problem is, is you had no business advising the CDC what the medical guidelines were for school closures. CDC officials didn't respond by broadcast time to a request for comment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Officials say over 10,000 federal employees might have access to programs spying on Americans. They also confirmed that the government analyzed data of over 3 million people in the U.S. Here are the highlights from this week's hearing. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, gives intelligence agencies the power to conduct surveillance on suspected foreign spies. However, bipartisan concerns have been raised because the program also has the ability to collect information about U.S. citizens. On Thursday, a panel of three witnesses associated with the U.S. Office of the Inspector General testified before Congress. The three are responsible for oversight of FISA. The House Judiciary Subcommittee grilled them on details surrounding the program. Last year, a report revealed that the FBI had made more than 3.3 million queries of Americans under FISA authority. The DOJ Inspector General confirmed that number at Thursday's hearing and that also that many of those searches were conducted in error. It's, it's obviously very concerning that there's that volume of searches 
um, and particularly concerning the error rate that was reported on in the last two years um, in the public reporting. Now, and that error rate was what? Um, I believe it was around 30 percent. Um, I, I think, fellow members, I think it's around 30 percent. Well, 30 percent. Um, I'm a lawyer, not a mathematician, but 3.4 million, about 30 percent. You're talking about seven figures of error in terms of these searches. I'm wondering. The congressman went on to ask how many people can perform these searches and access data on Americans through FISA. The three witnesses couldn't provide a number, but did say this. If I represent to you that we believe there may be north of 10,000 people in the federal government that can perform those queries, would anyone here have a basis to disagree with that assessment? No. Many Republicans are now calling to abolish FISA, and the issue doesn't seem to be partisan. Democrat Jerry Nadler said this in his opening statement on Thursday. Today, this committee finally gets back to the serious work of keeping Americans safe. Safe from those who seek to do us harm, and safe from those who might trample on our civil liberties in a quest to keep our country secure, no matter the cost. NTD reached out to the DOJ for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. A recent UN report is sparking controversy. The document is known as the Eight March Principles, and it proposes decriminalizing drug use and sexual activity on a global scale. Here's the story. Using drugs or alcohol while pregnant isn't a crime. That's the claim of a report proposed last month by the International Commission of Jurists in collaboration with the UN's AIDS Agency. It defines a range of behaviors as human rights issues, including those related to sexuality, gender identity, drug use, HIV, homelessness, and poverty. The document argues that criminalizing these offenders may cause social stigma to them. In the foreword, retired South African justice Edwin Cameron wrote, As a proudly gay man, I know profoundly how criminal law signals which groups are deemed worthy of protection and which of condemnation and ostracism. The document also says sexual contact involving persons below the minimum age of consent may in fact be consensual if not in law. Critics say this means sex between adults and children is okay However, authors of the report disagree. In a statement Thursday, the ICJ said, the principles do not call for the decriminalization of sex with children, nor do they call for the abolition of a domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex. As for abortion, the report states it must be taken entirely out of the purview of the criminal law. It also indicates decriminalizing drug possession and use, as well as activities like the homeless washing and defecating in public spaces. Fighting in Sudan has forced at least 13 countries to evacuate their citizens. The U.S. evacuated its diplomatic staff, but has yet to extract its estimated 16,000 citizens there. The State Department cited safety concerns as the reason. I wanted to get the perspective of a seasoned military person, so I spoke with international military strategist, Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb. <music> Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you for joining us. Hey, Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So the State Department said Tuesday that it's not currently safe to undertake a U.S. government-coordinated evacuation of U.S. private citizens. Um, they're saying that's because of an uh, uncertain security situation in Khartoum and the closure of the airport there. What do you make of this? Well, there's a couple things there. First of all, on where, where I do think this is a legitimate concern is the fact that there are so many U.S. citizens, and I've heard numbers up to around 16,000 people, be it just American citizens or dual citizens. And uh, that can create a problem in a country that size if the airport's under as much, uh, I guess, under attack as much as it has been and been closed down. Uh, so there's, who knows what's going to happen with them. Uh, but I think... What we failed to do, again, as a country, was really provide the people and the American citizens, specifically the alerts they need to be able to start moving somewhere. And it may not necessarily be to the airport for us to get them out. They could move to adjacent countries that would make that a lot easier. So um, we're still at the beginning stages of this. There's a lot to learn. Uh, but from what I'm hearing right now, there are still many of the same issues in Sudan uh, that were not adequately addressed in when we left Kabul either. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an evolving situation. There's a lot of question marks. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what could happen to these 16,000 Americans? And, um, you know, if the government doesn't get them out of the, the country in time? Yeah, there's a lot of things that, that could happen. One of those would be that they, they just stay there and they ride this out and figure out what what happens and, and wait for someone to declare some sort of victory. And, and they're still in country left to deal with whatever that looks like. The other part and what is actually happening now in some cases, too, is that they're leaving to adjacent countries. And that's not easy to do in this area of the world, for sure, but uh, that is one of the options they have. Go to the Port of Sudan and move across to Saudi Arabia, go to Ethiopia, uh, Somalia. And and you can see now that some of those choices aren't always going to be uh, ideal, especially for American citizens. Uh, But I think um, the the last option and one of the worst ones would be actually to be— stuck between this conflict and become a victim of it, especially if one of these two factions has a uh, an, an anti-American feel to it, and, and they find out that some of these people are dual American citizens or just plain American citizens in some regards, that uh, they could choose to make them uh, bargaining chips or they could just uh, commit some sort of act of violence on them directly. So as a former military man, you've probably seen uh, a lot of situations like this or at least have paid particularly close attention to them. What do you think is going through the minds of the people um, that are going through this situation right now, the the American citizens trapped in Sudan? Well, there's going to be a number of things. And, and first of all, that no, no man left behind is, is clearly one of those things that comes to the forefront of anybody who's ever been in the military. It's just the way it's supposed to work. And what is, what is interesting, of course, here is that they've declared the evacuation of U.S. government personnel out of the country already complete while leaving a bunch of American citizens there already. Now, what's going through their mind, I can guarantee you, is, one, how did they in individually get out? And, and two, even if they were to do so, they may have family members in that country who aren't citizens of the U.S. in any way, shape, or form. And, and what, do they, what do they do about them? Are they going to leave and leave those family behind, like many Afghans did in Kabul again? Or are they going to stay with their family and, and, and wait this out and see what happens? Um, Ultimately, what it's going to come down to is they're going to fear some uncertainty. What do you think this means to the image the U.S. projects to the world? Well, the image that the U.S. has been projecting to the world for quite some time under this administration is one of weakness and lack of a dis- and lack of decisive action. Uh, Kabul started that, and we predicted that Ukraine would be next. And there's uh, and there's continuous work within this administration, it seems, to try to fail at every level and project that uh, America is weak. And maybe we are at this point. Primarily, it's because of a lack of willpower. So as that weakness and that message gets sent across the world, the world will react appropriately. And and we see it every day on every continent right now. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, international military strategist and co-founder and director of Restore Liberty, thank you. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. freight train derailed in Crawford County, Wisconsin, and sent two locomotives and an unknown number of rail cars into the Mississippi River. Authorities have not called for an evacuation. A spokesperson from BNSF Railway said none of the rail cars contained hazardous materials, but some of them contained paint and lithium-ion batteries. She said the amount is too small to pose a risk to the river or communities. All crew members were accounted for, with one receiving a medical evaluation. The Federal Railroad Administration is sending a team to gather information and assist local emergency workers. Another BNSF rail train caught fire in Raymond, Minnesota last month. Hundreds of people had to evacuate. It was hauling ethanol and corn syrup. Three U.S. Army soldiers were killed in a helicopter crash yesterday. One is injured. The accident happened in Alaska near Fort Wainwright, where they were based. Two Army Apache helicopters collided mid-air on their way back from a training flight. Each helicopter carries two people. Two of the soldiers were pronounced dead at the scene. The third died on the way to a local hospital. There's been no word on the extent of the survivor's injuries, but the crash will be investigated by an Army combat readiness team. Security camera footage from a migrant center in northern Mexico captured the moment a deadly fire started at the facility. The blaze killed at least 40 people last month. NCD's Daniel Monahan has the story. The footage begins with a large group of people standing in line. Colorful foam mattresses can be seen rowed up on the debris-littered floor. 
Migrants locked in a cell area talked to officers. Suddenly the bars are covered with mattresses and smoke begins to billow out. A separate shot shows women in a room with bunk beds as smoke begins to stream in. One woman can be seen putting on her shoes as others begin to panic and escape the room. The rooms are soon totally filled with smoke. The blaze was allegedly started by inmates setting fire to their mattresses. Authorities say they were protesting their detention conditions and looming deportation. Apart from the 40 who died, 27 others were seriously injured. A group of migrants gathered outside the burned exterior of the migrant center in a vigil for those who died. Paola Munoz discussed how she feels seeing the video. A sense of desperation in the video, wanting to be there at that time to try to help people. The migrants called for justice. Let all those who have to be punished be punished. Let no one go unpunished. We won't allow for impunity. The facility is used by Mexican authorities to temporarily house migrants who illegally attempt to cross the border. It is located in downtown Juarez near the Rio Grande River. Tensions were already running high between authorities and migrants before the incident, with shelters full of people trying to cross into the United States. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A Venezuelan leader has fled to the U.S. Former opposition leader Juan Guaido said he left Venezuela due to an evident imminent risk. Here he is in Florida yesterday. I left Venezuela because I felt at risk. As you have just said, more than fear, I have already endured during these four years and three months intense persecution. Shots fired at my family, my vehicle, my house, my family being tortured, my work team, my people being murdered, more than imminent risk of arrest. Guaido says he will meet U.S. lawmakers and the Biden administration next week in Washington. He plans to ask for protection and support to be able to hold free elections in Venezuela. The former Venezuelan opposition leader arrived in Miami on Tuesday. This followed a surprise visit to Colombia the previous day, where he had hoped to meet with participants at an international summit. Guaido headed an interim government for nearly three years before being replaced as head of the opposition legislature at the end of 2022. North America's largest transportation network suspended its use of Twitter for service alerts yesterday. It said the reliability of the platform can no longer be guaranteed. It comes after the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, said their access to Twitter was interrupted twice over the last two weeks. The MTA serves over 15 million passengers across New York and Connecticut. In a statement, the network added that it does not pay tech platforms to publish service information and has built redundant tools that provide service alerts in real time. For now, the MTA account will remain active, meaning customers will still be able to send tweets to MTA accounts and get responses. Government employees in North Dakota could soon have a right to ignore students and colleagues' preferred pronouns. A bill to do just that is heading to the governor's desk for consideration. The measure forbids government entities from forcing employees to speak with pronouns that are inconsistent with biological sex. And for public school teachers who want to use a student's preferred pronoun, they have to get permission both from the student's parents and a school administrator. The governor vetoed a similar bill in March, saying that he thought the legislation would have made teachers' jobs more challenging. But this time, the bill is supported by enough lawmakers to technically override any veto by the governor. Two brothers in Texas are recovering after surviving a lightning strike. The boy's mother spoke out about the terrifying incident. It's a blur. I just remember all everybody praying and uh, telling them, Jaden, Isaac, come on, come on, breathe, breathe. You gotta wake up, wake up. I thought I had lost my voice, honestly. It was the worst feeling you can ever. It's okay. 7-year-old Isaac and 13-year-old Jaden were playing outside their home Wednesday when lightning struck the tree above them. The lightning ricocheted and ended up striking Jaden, <laughs> causing cardiac arrest. Doctors say it then ricocheted off him to Isaac. Both boys lost consciousness and collapsed. By Thursday, they were doing better and resting. Their mother says it wasn't raining when the lightning hit and she was about to tell them to go inside. 
According to the CDC, there's a less than one in a million chance you'll be struck by lightning in a given year. When we come back, FBI Director Christopher Wray outlines the challenges his agency faces in cyber warfare. We share what he had to say about threats against the U.S. And a document shows that Beijing secretly jailed a COVID-19 citizen journalist. He went missing for over three years after exposing the first outbreak in Wuhan. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. A near collision in the disputed South China Sea. A Chinese Coast Guard vessel blocked the path of a Philippine patrol boat. The Philippine Coast Guard released video recording of what they called a confrontation. China Coast Guard 5201. This is Philippine Coast Guard vessel. The Union Shoals falls within the Philippine Exclusive Economic Zone. Request to stay clear from our passage in accordance with the Commission regulation. Over. This happened during a week-long patrol by the Philippine Coast Guard last week. The Philippines say it spotted over 100 maritime militia boats in its own waters. That includes a naval frigate and two Chinese Coast Guard vessels. It says one of the Chinese boats carried out dangerous maneuvers just 150 feet away from a Philippine ship. Two other ships were said to have displayed aggressive tactics and posed a significant threat to the safety of the Philippine vessel and its crew. In response, the Chinese foreign ministry accused the Philippine vessel of trespassing into Chinese waters. It said the Chinese Coast Guard was taking actions to safeguard sovereignty. FBI Director Christopher Wray says the U.S. is falling behind in its cyber war with the Chinese Communist Party. He testified before a House panel yesterday. Ray says hackers from the Chinese regime outnumbered U.S. cyber specialists by 50 to 1. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has more from yesterday's hearing. Ray defended President Biden's 2024 budget request in his testimony before the House Appropriations Committee on Thursday. We will put those critical resources towards ensuring the FBI remains the world's premier cyber investigative agency. The GOP debt limit bill passed in the House would cut FBI funding by 22 percent. Ray says the cut would mean scores of threats from the Chinese Communist Party or CCP go unaddressed. And I can assure you the Chinese government is not dialing back. Ray says FBI investigations into the CCP and their actors have increased by over 1,300 percent. He says the FBI blocks around 15 million cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure every week. Ray argued the 22% cut being proposed by Republicans would further benefit the CCP's cyber dominance. And the FBI director says it's not just the Chinese regime that poses a challenge in cyberspace. Countries like Russia, Iran, and North Korea. <clears throat> and it is getting more and more challenging to discern where the nation-state threat ends and the cyber criminal threat begins. Many Republicans have expressed concerns that the FBI has become more partisan in recent years and accused the agency of focusing on targeting Democrats' political enemies instead of prioritizing the protection of American citizens. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Chinese police have questioned staff at a U.S. consultancy firm based in Shanghai. Police first visited the offices at Bain & Company around two weeks ago. Initial reports indicate some of the company's phones and computers were confiscated. The police reportedly made more than one visit to the offices, although the purpose is unclear. It's also unknown whether the raids were connected to the firm or its clients. According to a statement by the company, several staff were questioned, but no arrests were reported. The incursion came in the wake of a raid at U.S. due diligence firm Minsk Group in Beijing last month and amid heightened tensions between China and the U.S. The American Chamber of Commerce in China says U.S. businesses are growing pessimistic about their prospects in the country. A top Biden advisor says the U.S. isn't seeking to decouple from China. That's despite a widening rift over political issues. We are for de-risking and diversifying, not decoupling. Our export controls will remain narrowly focused on technology that could tilt the military balance. We're simply ensuring that U.S. and allied technology is not used against us. We are not cutting off trade. National Security Advisor 
Jake Sullivan made the comment in a Washington speech Thursday. He said Washington will invest in secure, resilient supply chains and will push for a level playing field. But he noted the U.S.-China trading relationship has been substantial, with bilateral trade setting an all-time high last year. As the world reels from years of COVID-19, what has become of the missing whistleblowers who first exposed the outbreak in China? Fang Bin was one of the citizen journalists covering the pandemic amid the 2020 Wuhan lockdown. But since then, his whereabouts have stayed unknown. Recent evidence suggests that Beijing could have handed down a three-year sentence against him. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. This document was filed on April 7, 2022, with the CCP's Political and Legal Affairs Commission. The organization oversees the state judicial system and law enforcement and plays a key role in the regime's crackdown on dissidents. As a means of its authoritarian rule, the CCP sets up a variety of such leadership committees to intervene in decision-making at all levels of government. In an early video investigating the lockdown in Wuhan, Fang Bing captured a shocking scene. In it, a hospital moved eight bodies in just five minutes. He also called on social media to push nationwide resistance to the tyranny of the Chinese Communist Party. In another video released in February 2020, Fang paid tribute to the late Dr. Li Wenliang. The whistleblower faced scrutiny for sounding an early alarm about COVID-19. Fang also mentioned Chen Chuxi, a then-missing human rights lawyer and citizen journalist. His video offered an unfiltered glimpse of the pandemic in Wuhan. Fan Bing explained why he insisted on reporting the truth despite threats from the authorities. Fang was soon arrested and has not been seen since. Sources say Fang Bin will be released in late April, but his family say they never even received a verdict. Besides Fang, three more citizen journalists were also detained for exposing the outbreak in Wuhan. One of them was sentenced to four years. In February, the U.S. Congressional Executive Commission on China responded to Fang Bing's arrest. It urged Beijing to immediately release Fang, as well as others held for the same reason. This is not the first time he has been detained. Fang is also a Falun Gong practitioner. According to the U.S.-based Falun Dafa Info Center, he has been detained in a forced labor camp in 2001 because of his faith. His wife is currently imprisoned for her faith in Falun Gong. Their child's location is unknown. Up next, the chairman of the Federal Reserve is fooled by Russian pranksters posing as the Ukrainian president. The call is broadcast in Russia. Russia is using facial recognition technology to crack down on dissent. Two Russian defectors share their experiences more shortly here on NTD News Today. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell thought he was talking to Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky, but it was all just a call from a couple of Russian pranksters. Video of the prank was shown on Russian state television. The video clips show Powell answering a range of questions posed by the fake Zelensky. A Fed spokesperson says it was a friendly conversation that took place in the context of supporting the Ukrainian people and that no sensitive or confidential information was discussed. The Fed says the video appears to have been edited and parts could be false. The pro-Putin prankster duo have been making successful international prank calls to officials for years. After the Powell call, the pair talked about it on Russian social media, including with commentary by the Russian arms dealer released from a U.S. prison last year. Moscow's video surveillance network plays an important role in the arrest of anti-government protesters. And since the invasion of Ukraine, 
Russian police have increased the use of facial recognition to crack down on dissent, and now authorities are using it to stop people from protesting in the first place. Here's the story. This video was recorded by Russian civil rights activist Alexander Zarov as he entered a metro station in Moscow. We see Zarov walking through a payment gate equipped with a camera which snaps a photo of him. Minutes later, police officers approach him on the platform. It was the third time Zarov has been detained inside the Moscow metro. I asked them to tell me the reason for my detention. One of the police officers justified this by saying that I was on the wanted list. The activist was identified by facial recognition, a technology that's widely deployed across the capital's metro system. In Russia, we have a big brother who's watching for you every, every time, and people can say, can talk more about uh, political things. The Russian government and Moscow city authorities did not respond to detailed questions for this story and the episodes it describes. In 2017, the city of Moscow announced the launch of one of the world's largest facial recognition video surveillance networks. The capital's Department of Information Technologies said at the time that some 160,000 cameras were installed across the city to help law enforcement. The Moscow Metro uses facial recognition as part of its fare payment system, as well as for security reasons. Passengers are photographed as they walk through the gates. A computer algorithm then uses artificial intelligence algorithms to analyse and identify faces. If the system flags a passenger for detention, police respond within seconds or minutes. That's according to 29 people who were detained in this way all have one thing in common. They're critical of President Vladimir Putin. Most have previously joined anti-government protests. I think the reason why I was detained in the metro is due to me taking my civic stance, which is that I am against the war between Russia and Ukraine and against political repression in the country. A review of more than 2,000 court cases shows these cameras have played an important role in the arrest of hundreds of protesters. Most of these people were detained in 2021 after they joined anti-government demonstrations. According to more than two dozen detainees, after Russia invaded Ukraine, authorities began using facial recognition to prevent people from protesting in the first place. Sergei Pingchuk is one of them. was detained in a metro. I had been detained before five or six times, I don't remember, uh, because of my um, political activities. But that detention, it was special, it was unusual, because uh, I was detained for nothing. Just when I entered to the metro station, a police officer approached to me, grabbed me and said, you're detained, come with me. Pinchuk says that the police then took him to a nearby police station for interrogation. Uh, there was a police officer, Rogov, it's his last name. Uh, I remember that because he threatened me. He said that he put me in a prison for, for years. Uh, he grabbed my neck and beat me against the wall a couple of times, kicked by his uh, foot. And he was really angry, he was violent. Yeah, that was bad experience. Neither Pinchuk or Zarov were charged with any offence. For both Pinchuk and Zarov, the surveillance risk for detention, coupled with the pressure from the police, have so upended their lives they felt that they were left with no other choice but to leave Russia. After the detention, I had a feeling that Russia was transforming into a sort of branch office of China's Xinjiang where modern digital technologies become a toy in the hands of a dictator. Zarov has moved to Germany, while Pinchuk decided to relocate to the United States. He now lives in Seattle and is seeking asylum. Russia's Bolshoi theater is being shunned by the West over the Ukraine invasion. And now it's looking east to China instead. The Bolshoi is home to two of the world's greatest opera and ballet companies and it's already set to go to China in July. 
director Vladimir Yurin says discussions are underway about both the ballet and the opera going there in 2024. Yurin was asked if Western attitudes to Russian culture were changing. We used to have many colleagues with whom we cooperated with and had been very happy to do so. And I think we really achieved very good creative results thanks to this cooperation. I can only express my regret that this cooperation has stopped today. Yurin claims the reason for touring China isn't financial. He says it's a myth that overseas tours bring in significant revenue and that it's more a question of image, sharing what we know how to do and creativity. The season still has a premiere in store of Verdi's opera Luisa Miller, featuring Italian tenor Antonio Poli. Poli says he has no qualms about performing in Russia, even if it means flying via Turkey because of Western sanctions. Russia and China have moved to further strengthen their economic, political and military ties since Moscow invaded Ukraine last year in what it calls a special military operation. BBC's chairman Richard Sharp quit his job today. That's after a report found he helped former Prime Minister Boris Johnson secure a loan worth almost a million dollars. The UK's public appointments watchdog was investigating Sharp's appointment to chair the BBC in 2021. The report found he failed to disclose the potential conflict of interest, but that it didn't necessarily invalidate his appointment. The loan deal happened weeks before Johnson appointed Sharp as head of the BBC. Sharp says the breach of the rules was accidental and not a big deal. However, the concern is that it could influence the way the network reports on the former prime minister. Sharp said that staying until the end of this four-year term would be a distraction from the BBC's work. But he said he would remain until the end of June while the search for a successor takes place. Staying in the UK, lawmakers are hoping to crack down on gambling and require stricter background checks. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser presented a long-awaited proposal and said a new approach is needed to tackle addiction. Temptation to gamble is now everywhere in society. And while the overwhelming majority is done safely and within people's means, for some, the ever-present temptation can lead them to a very dangerous path. Because when gambling becomes addiction, it can wreck lives, shattered families, lost jobs, foreclosed homes, jail time, suicide. Plans also include maximum stakes for online slot machines of between £2 and £15 for all customers, and a new tax that will see gambling companies fund more research, education, and treatment for addiction. Fraser also said the government will do more to protect children by ensuring they can do no form of gambling, either online or widely accessible scratch cards. The comprehensive review of gambling follows an explosion in online betting and a string of high-profile cases where customers have suffered huge losses or taken their own lives. This is the biggest shakeup of the industry's regulations in 15 years. Coming up, the last two students graduate from a junior high school in a Japanese mountain village. It's the last graduation the school will ever have and twin moms in Indonesia are doing something good for the local community, They're providing a way for poor children to get an education. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. In Mountains Village in Japan, Fukushima Prefecture, the local junior high school is holding its final graduation ceremony for a class of only two students. The situation here is not usual. Here's the story. These 15-year-olds are the only students left at their school in the remote Japanese village of 10A. They'll also be the last ever. Aoi Hoshi and Eita Sato are preparing to graduate. When they do, the 76-year-old Yamoto Junior High School will close its doors for good. No new students have enrolled. I thought that my big sister, me and my little brother would all go to the same school. So it was a big shock that we wouldn't be able to. 
Empty classrooms like this are an increasingly common sight across Japan. As the country's population ages and the birth rate plunges faster than expected, school closures have picked up pace. According to government data, about 450 schools close every year. Between 2002 and 2020, nearly 9,000 shut their doors forever. School principal Mikio Watanabe is showing us graduation photos from over the years that hang near the entrance of the school. This year is from the period when the school had the most pupils. There were about 160 of them. The number of students visibly drops from around the year 2000. There's no picture from 2022. Last year, this school didn't have any graduating students. This year's graduates are the final two ones. Falling birth rates have become an issue across Asia, with the costs of raising children dampening birth rates in neighboring South Korea and China. But Japan's situation is especially critical. Births tumbled below 800,000 in 2022, a new record low according to government estimates, and eight years earlier than expected. In 10A, only around 10% of the population is now under 18. Local depopulation picked up speed after the 2011 Fukushima disaster, less than 62 miles away. Falling birth rates and Japan's aging population have only added to the issue. Sato's mother, Masumi, a Yamoto graduate herself, says the school's closure will be a real blow for the area. When I think about this area, the thing that worries me is that people might not consider it as a place to relocate and start a family if there is no junior high school. However, on graduation day, spirits are high. For Yoshi and Sato, it's a happy occasion. But the imminent closure of Yamoto has left the village and the students themselves in an uncertain position. Hoshi dreams of becoming a nursery school teacher. Being able to stay here and do it is looking increasingly unlikely. I don't know if there will be any children left in the village by the time I'm a nursery school teacher. But if there are, I want to come back and do it here. In Indonesia, two twin sisters have devoted their lives to helping impoverished children receive an education. Let's take a look. They are affectionately known as twin moms. Now in their 70s, Indonesian twins Sri Iraningsa and Sri Rosiati have been teaching marginalized children from low-income families for more than 40 years. Their goal? To equip the students with practical skills so that they can make a living after graduation. We're not asking for money. On the contrary, our money is for this school. In 1983, the sisters funded the Kartini Emergency School in the middle of a once elite area of Jakarta. From cooking to flower arranging, students learn practical skills, ensuring that they won't return to sorting through trash or begging on the streets. In the middle of this elite housing complex in Kalapa Gading, these people sweep the streets. Then, where do their kids go to school? They don't have money. They have to pay rent in the corners of the city next to rivers, shacks. How would their kids attend school? Meanwhile, the cheapest tuition fees in that area are 5 million rupiah. That's why we made this school and let those kids enroll here. In Indonesia, it is mandatory for children to attend school from grades 1 to 9. Since 2008, the government has required public primary schools to abolish tuition fees. But many marginalized children coming from low-income families struggle to afford excess costs, such as uniforms and books. One such student is Lenny Noor Afia. In Jakarta, I can't see paddy fields. I can't see the outside world. So the twin mums brought me here. We harvest snails and eels, and we're getting the experience together. It's fun. Nia Latifa, an alumni of the school, faced similar challenges. She graduated in 2007 before enrolling in a public school recommended by the twin moms. My family's condition was too poor for me to go to a public school. So I started attending the twin moms school so I could get a formal and free education until I can achieve my dream of going for a master's and attending a public university. But thank God, after going to the twin moms school and being guided by them, I was able to attend the University of Indonesia, and now I'm a master's student at the University of Pamulang. I'm also working in an international organization, which is something I couldn't have achieved. 
Indonesia has seen a rise in children out of school in 2022, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics. More than 38,000 children were out of school in Jakarta alone, but the twin mums remain undeterred. We receive happiness here, peace, contentment. After going through life for 73 years, this is what we've been searching for. Coming up, Frédéric Chopin's last piano and several manuscripts of his music are on display in Warsaw. We'll take you to the renovated museum and hundreds of different dog breeds making appearances in New York City. They're vying for the best at the 147th Westminster Dog Show. Details to come on NTD News Today. Poland is celebrating pianist and composer Frédéric Chopin. His last piano and several manuscripts of his music are on display in Warsaw. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the exhibition. The National Frederick Chopin Institute in Warsaw is reopening after months of renovations. A large part of the work was creating the right air and light conditions for display. The main reason of this uh, refurbishment was to, uh, to create a, a good atmosphere, a good air condition uh, to, for, uh, for the originals, for the original objects, because they are very sensitive. Chopin's last piano is here, as well as original manuscripts. And then when you see his handwriting, it makes you a bit like, you know, like going on a, on a time vehicle. You feel transported to his age and to his drawing room. Letter Chopin wrote to his companion, the writer George Sand, and a satirical drawing she made of him are here as well. The letters which are on display here are the absolute originals, certified, verified by our experts, and these are the letters he wrote himself, and they are at the heart of our collection. These letters in particular provide insight into the Polish composer's life. They're, well, romantically very inspiring because when you read them, you get very close to Chopin, who was quite a literary man, I have to say. He wrote in beautiful Polish and in a very imaginative way. Chopin was born in 1810. He lived in Paris until his death in 1849. The focus of the renewed exhibition is on the original manuscripts. Especially after the pandemic, we realized that people are overwhelmed, oversaturated with things that are not original. They had enough of it, and they wanted more originals. They wanted to touch the real thing. The museum closed last fall for renovation. It's set to reopen Saturday, April 29th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Dog lovers, stay tuned. The 147th Westminster Dog Show kicks off next week in New York City. America's favorite canine athletes will be competing for glory. Let's take a look at a preview of the event. Dog trainers from across the country are gearing up for the 147th Westminster Dog Show. The official event kicks off on May 6th at the U.S. Tennis Center in New York City and runs for four days. We've got lots of different events. Saturday is our canine celebration. We're going to be having our 10th annual agility competition, our obedience. We're going to have a meet the breeds. We've got a demo ring where you'll see dogs doing scenting and herding and all sorts of things like that. It's the second longest running sports event in U.S. history, hosted by the American Kennel Club. Dogs will join agility and obedience competitions, among other evaluating events. This week, they're having a pre-show rehearsal with their owners. A Shetland sheepdog jumps over a steel ring, darts through a tunnel, and zigzags across an obstacle course. His owner says it was a long process to train him, but fun to do. This year, the Kennel Club is adding a new event, dock diving. It's really a competition of, of distance, so how far a dog jumps off of a dock into a pool of water and the dogs are enticed by a toy. So their owner throws a toy, the dogs go as far as they can. There are different height categories, of course. This year, more than 200 breeds will showcase their skills in the show. The club will also introduce a new breed of hunting dog. His name is Jasper. He's a two-year-old um, Brocco Italiano, uh, the newest breed recognized for Westminster this year. It'll be the first year 
they are competing. Um, I'll be showing him in the breed ring this year. Neaton said it's a big deal because this marks the first year they've qualified for the competition. The final round is known as Best in Show. It'll take place on May 9th in the Arthur Ashe Arena Stadium. We're really looking forward to spending a wonderful time celebrating dogs and the companionship that they bring to our life. Sturz said all 50 states were represented in the competition, as well as 13 countries. A zoo in northern Germany is thrilled that a baby polar bear is growing up healthy. It welcomed its first polar bear cub in more than 20 years last December. Mom Victoria gave birth to this baby bear last December. The last bear born in the zoo was Victoria herself. She's caring for her newborn baby in their den. The first few days after birth are critical for polar bear cubs. They're nearly blind and deaf and weigh less than two pounds. But so far, this baby polar bear has been healthy and lively. Zoo officials say breeding efforts for this endangered species are paying off. Veterinarians can monitor the family's behavior through a camera, but it's unclear when visitors will be able to see them. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, and you're watching NTD News.